Hi, this is Maya, and I'm co-host of the Cicada Story Slam with Annie Stewart. We um, set the podcast in a small town in Victoria, Australia, called Dalesford, where we have lots of progressive-thinking people, open-minded community. We run the Cicada Story Slam every third Thursday of the month at a local pub, and we have wonderful stories to share from our small town. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. So, welcome to number two of The Cicada. For all you newcomers, my name's Annie Stewart. As always, we like to start our things with an acknowledgement of country, and I've brought this along tonight, because the themes for tonight is Are the Stars Out? And you might know that the local Jajarung believe the souls of their ancestors live in the birds, and they believe Bunjil the eagle is the creator of all the landscapes and the sky, And at night time, he heads home to his home on Jupiter. So when you're looking up in the stars, there's Jupiter. So what it is, you've got six minutes to tell a story. A bell will go at five minutes to give you a bit of a warning. And the themes are the stars out tonight. I'd like to invite our first storyteller up for the night. And I do believe Mara Rapani. going to tell a very impromptu story. About six months ago, I was heading to Melbourne to visit a friend and travelling there with my daughters. It was around the time that a young woman's life had been taken as she walked home from a comedy performance. And the story had really deeply affected me. I want to stop there just to say that there are no children in the audience, so Where I was going to use the word bleep for some bits that are a little bit challenging, I will not use that word anymore. (laughs) My girls and I had taken the train from Balan and from from Balan to Southern Cross, then the tram from Southern Cross to Coburg. I'm extremely familiar with public transport in Melbourne. I had used it so often. I had travelled to Melbourne and through Melbourne on all modes of transport, bus, train, bike, walking, and had always, always had a positive experience. I always felt safe. I always felt quite relaxed. However, on this trip, I was feeling a bit uneasy. I realised that was due in part because the story was still so fresh in my mind, but also because my trips to Melbourne since my move to Dalesford had been so infrequent that the city I loved and that had been my sanctuary for over 20 years was becoming less familiar and less welcoming. It was already dark as we stepped off the tram in Coburg and began to walk along the footpath. My friend's home was a mere 15 minutes away. I found myself, however, compelled to walk briskly very briskly, and noticed my senses were extremely alert and my eyes wide open. I was thinking not stop about Eurydice. Those of you who know the story may remember the police response. Women were warned to be more situationally aware. This statement provoked a great deal of anger, and I too felt this anger. I recall a male friend explaining to me that it made sense for the police to say that, and I in turn explained the following. Imagine, I said, imagine that every time you read the newspaper or the news, you come across a headline that says, 
young father murdered by wife, husband killed by ex-partner, newlywed man, again, assaulted by female partner, and a variation of headlines on that theme. And you know that one in four men have been sexually assaulted. And then imagine another headline of a young man, someone who looks a bit like you, who could be you, who was simply walking home like you do or have done a thousand times, but he never made it. And then on the news the next day, a female police officer, because the police force is 98% female, and she says to you, men, you need to be more situationally aware. In other words, you need to take more responsibility for yourself. Not the perpetrator, he does not need to do anything. If you want to avoid this, and if this happens to you, well, you simply weren't situationally aware enough. These words were unfortunately swimming around in my head as I held onto the hands of my daughters and held tightly onto various heavy bags. I was walking very fast and wanting to the comfort of my friend's home more than usual. I was disappointed, however, in myself for having these feelings. This is not how I should be feeling. Just, just relax. Slow down. Don't let a story get to you so much. We approached the car park and I noticed the man approaching his car. I could not help myself. I had to look up to see what he was doing. And he looked straight at me. I kept walking ever so briskly, so darn briskly that I had not seen the rise in the footpath and slowly my body began to fall. I wanted to free my hands from those of my children and the bags I was carrying, but they simply weren't untangling themselves fast enough. So I slowly began to fall down and down and down until I just went bang into my chin, my face and head first. I was shocked, but not too hurt, and I was a little bit amused that I was in this situation. I heard the man from the car park say to me, are you okay? Are you all right? And I said, yes, 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 I'm fine, I'm, I'm fine. And then he said these words to me. He said, I saw you looking paranoid at me. And I thought, doesn't he mean situationally aware? <laughs> We made it from my friend's home to warm drinks and the comfort that comes with sharing an experience. On the way home to Dalesford, I was more relaxed. From Belan, we drove slowly home through the darkness once more, past the deep, rich forest, the wind turbines, the backcountry roads and the large garden homes, up along Morganti's Road, slowing down for kangaroos and rabbits, up along Allison's Road, and then that slow-motion turn into our driveway on the west with the moon just above our home to the east. This big, full, giant, beautiful moon. And all around her, welcoming me home, the flickering and gleaming of twinkling stars, who are in the privileged position of being free to be out at all hours of the night. And never once will they feel the need to be situationally aware. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mara. And, of course, many who haven't been here won't realise the reason we started this 
was because of all the money that came in for Live Love Life and went out of town and none of us who work as artists in town were involved with any of that funding. But the thing we were really upset about and we wanted to bring was a sense of community. So it's really lovely to have these nights and it's wonderful to have you up telling your stories. And unfortunately, one of the things that's happened in our hometown is that our Swiss-Italian festival has fallen over. Because if so, you would have had that chance to hear you sing some of your beautiful Italian folk tales. So thank you so much for your story. And I'd like to invite our next guest up. And Nikki Marshall. Have you got a story for us? Okay. Um, are the stars out tonight? Well... My father died last year at the ripe old age of 97. And eight years before that, he'd had a stroke which cruelly affected his bright mind and his memory instead of his body. And that developed into what the doctors called post-stroke dementia. But as a family, we were determined to keep Dad and Mum at home for as long as possible with our support. And that meant that Dad was able to die at home, in his own bed, with Mum beside him and all of us children around him. And after he died, I said to a number of friends, I felt like I had three fathers. The father of my childhood, the father of my adulthood, and the older, old, frailer father who needed our help with everyday living. And over the last few months, we've been gradually going through Dad's belongings and his, his uh, photos, his books, his letters, his cards, his treasures. And it's felt like re-getting to know, remembering the father of my childhood and the father of my adulthood. It's felt like sitting outside under the night sky at, at Yandoit and watching the clouds peel back like curtains on a stage to reveal a sea of stars and some of those stars are familiar and some of those stars I haven't seen for a long time and some of those stars I know but they seem to shine more brightly now. So I want to tell you something about something that happened on the last day of Dad's life but before I do that I want to tell you about an experience that happened to him in the last year of his school life. One of those seminal, seminal experiences that we can all look back on and think, ah, yes, that helped to shape me. So in 1938, when my dad was 17 years old, he rode in the winning head of the river crew in New South Wales. And I remember him telling us how he threw absolutely everything into that race and at the end of it he was so exhausted he almost had to be carried out of the boat and that was the way my father lived whatever inspired he threw himself into it 100% there was no such thing as half measures so for the next 30 to 40 years rowing became an essential part of dad's life and he coached a number of champion crews at schoolboy level, university and national level. And as a child, I felt like I attended more regattas than I had hot dinners. Mm -hmm. But back to the last day of Dad's life. My mum told me that 
he woke earlier than usual that morning and he put on his white shorts and his T-shirt and told her that he was going down to the rowing boat shed. It was a cool morning, so Mum suggested that he put on his long pants and his jumper and instead bring back the coffee and the newspaper to bed, which was part of their usual morning routine. Later on that afternoon, I headed down to Melbourne to cook a meal and to spend the night with them, and it was clear when I arrived at their house that, there was, that something had happened for Dad, and when we, what we think happened was he'd had another stroke. So I called my sister, and she came over, and we decided... Together we decided that we wouldn't call the doctor. Dad wasn't distressed, he wasn't in any pain. And it was after hours on a Friday and we didn't want to be dealing with a locum and we didn't want the possibility that he might be sent to hospital and outside of familiar surroundings. So um, so we cooked a, a, a simple meal and um, we shared a simple meal and but it became clear that Dad needed more help than usual to get into bed and as I helped him off with his long pants to put on his pyjama pants there were those pair of white shorts that he'd put on in the morning. Those same white shorts that he would have worn at that winning Head of the River crew. And I tucked him into bed and kissed him goodnight and went down stairs and my sister and I rang my brothers and we all gathered together for the last few hours. Um, Yeah, so, yes, and after Dad died, I kept thinking about those white shorts and I kept thinking, it set me thinking about and wondering about the mystery of the unconscious mind and the mystery of the mind that's affected by dementia and the mystery of the spirit. And I wondered, when Dad put those white shorts on on the last day of his life, did he, did he know somehow that this would be his last race and that this time, after 97 years of living life to the absolute fullest, this time his body would have to be carried out of that boat. So now when I look at the stars, I look not only... Uh, when I, when, now when I look up at that night sky, I look not only at the stars and those stars that are familiar and those stars that I feel I'm re-getting to know, but I look at the dark spaces between the stars, those dark spaces that Bruce Pascoe in his book Dark Emu invites us to look at, invites us to take more notice of. And I wonder how much we underestimate the knowing of the unconscious mind, the knowing of the mind affected by dementia, the knowing of the spirit. And as I look up at those dark spaces and I trace a line between the stars, sometimes I feel I can see my dear dad in the shape of a rowing boat crossing the finishing line. Thanks. Sorry. I know you're not supposed to have notes or any different things, but I brought something along tonight, and with that story, Nikki, 
as always, very thoughtful and evocative. I've had this for about 25 years, an Aboriginal sky chart. And I've just had this fantastic adventure. I went up to Condoblin in the middle of New South Wales and um, some friends of mine who are Welsh storytellers had come and because it's 50 years since Park's telescope, they were invited to come and tell their stories of the night sky out at the Wiradjuri Aboriginal Cultural Centre. And it made me realise how lucky we are here in Dalesford that last year when the Regional Centre for Culture came and funded the local Jajarung, they've had time to sort of bring their stories back and some of those stories we don't know about the night skies have, have more prominence. And so thank you once more. And as you said, Bruce Pascoe's book. And if you're interested, you can come and have a little bit of a look here. And I also brought something along because it referenced it. You might have seen the front page of The Advocate this week. Our darling old mate, Rod May, it's nearly two years since he died and he, the person who was responsible is about to go to, um, to court about it. And uh, I remember at Rod's service when I told him, as the Jajarung believe that souls of their ancestors live in the birds, I thought that Rod might be the yellow-tailed black cockatoo. But his daughter said, no, 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 we reckon he's Bunjil the eagle being the most important. And I said, well, maybe he's Bunjil the eagle gone back to Jupiter. And then I had another thought, and that was item number three of my talk on his uh, service, was there is a story on my sky chart about the Milky Way. And the Aboriginal people believe that it's a river on its way to death. And the story on the chart is about an old man that knew his time's about to be over and he goes and says goodbye to everybody and good night. And the Milky Way is actually all his fires burning. And if anybody knew Rod, knew that he loved to have a good bush fire burn off all around his farm. So I'm trying to talk his daughters into the fact that maybe, you know, the Milky Way, we can have the whole Milky Way for your dad, if you like. But thank you for sort of prompting that story for me. Um, Petrus. I would like to start with an advertisement. <laughs> On June the 25th, I will be opening my exhibition of new ceramics at the Australian Galleries in Melbourne. On June, July the 6th, at 2 p.m., I shall be presenting an illustrated talk, an artist talk, at the same place. You're all welcome and invited to attend. My talk this evening in which I star, getting the evening's theme and the reference done early, is a small aspect of my artist talk. And for it, I would like you to allow my words to paint a picture for you. It is about the awakening of the artist in the child. Here is my story. Memories of the last century. The last century which holds the roots of the tree that grows in the next. From my childhood I remember my room at the distant Dutch attic. My room where I spent many nights awake, dreaming, reading, imagining, always reading, always imagining. My room a safe haven and at the same time a holding cell. And I both 
its happy and uneasy prisoner. This is for the child in you. In this room at the angle of the roof, a small iron window opened out onto a still life of red bricked walls. Tiled chimneys, tiled roofs, chimneys, one tall tree, and what I imagine was always watching the eye of God, the clock face of the nearby cathedral tower. I climb a chair, open the window, and standing on my toes, wriggle my head and shoulders out of the small opening to, like another birth, view these things. Standing there always imagining beyond both the narrowness and distance of the horizon. What lies beyond the unseen views, the imagined views, driving me along my course of childhood discovery. My room is tucked close under the thatch, a simple wooden bed and chair, pictures on the wall. I can't remember the pictures on the wall for the gallery of pictures inside of my head, but I can remember the books, stacks of books, stacks of mind pictures, stacks of doorways into new thoughts, stacks of salvation. My small, my small room with the warmth and austerity of one of Van Gogh's painted rooms. In this room, books first encouraged me beyond my perceived ability. In this room at night, another word, another world, both closer and further away. I'm lying in bed, surrounded by the sounds of the night. I hear the wildness of the autumn storms, the stillness of falling snow, the clip-clop of the milk cart's horse on, an, on its night round the delirious arias of a drunk ambling home using the whole of the streets as if he were skating. And I imagine. Here lying in bed, I watch the journeys of the stars. That's got the stars out of the way. <laughs> and the monthly visit of the moon. I watched and, and was enchanted by the watercolor paintings of cloudscapes and the magnificent color compositions of sunrise and sunset. Dutch skies as painted by 17th century Dutch artists, small masterpieces. Lying here night after night, I watch my imagination unravel and take shape, unravel and take shape, like a jumper being re-knitted re over and over again at night in a pool of warm lamplight by my mother for the next child in line. Here during these endless hours in my room, my imagination swelled like dough left to rise which I had also seen on my toes, through another small window, the view into the warm bakery across the street. It seems that whenever we want to see beyond our own world, we have to get onto our toes, we have to stretch. And later these stories were made more with, with paint and paper, or clay, or in the sandbox, built by my father in our minute garden. The parents who understood, whose generosity of spirit allowed my creativity wide range and development. In this room I discovered the edge, not the edge of physical proportions, but that of mental imaginings. The edge both brightening and real. This was not a place I was allowed to visit in the real world downstairs, but here in solitude I could play, discover, experiment, experience, and thus in my own childlike way start already to push some boundaries boundaries of the rippling sea of white bedsheets, which would later become the huge watery waves of the oceans I would cross. I have since left that safe haven of imaginings in my childhood room, 
and traveled those very same imaginings into reality. And everywhere I went, I came across the magic of the world. And everywhere I went, I came across the healing quality of poetry. And everywhere I went, I came across more edges to investigate, to push and pull at. And everywhere I went, I came across the trials and tribulations of men in search, in search to find meaning. Sometimes I still stand there with my head out of the roof, making a hole in the night sky, trying to read the calligraphy of the stars, trying to discover yet another story, all the while marveling at that gossamer divide between reality and imagination, between reality and dream. Thank you. Thank you so much, Petrus. As you can see, Petrus goes to a lot of trouble to, to think of his story and write it out for him. So we really appreciate your efforts. And last year at the end of the series, um, Petrus gave me a copy of all the stories he told at the Slam. So that's something I'll treasure. So we'll start collecting them again, hey, Petrus, for my collection. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I couldn't get out of my head the thought of those that beautiful series of bowls you did. Was it your Korean venture that seemed to have little stars on the side of it and I just had that in the back of my mind while I was hearing that so thank you for that. Um, now someone's arrived in late and we've got Kirsty. Have we got any more storytellers tonight that would like to get up? Toby? Yes. Uh, I actually thought the theme tonight was Fool's Rushing. Uh, That's okay, that was the first one, so go. Uh, okay, that explains everything. Um, but uh, it is uh, the stars out tonight, which is fine, uh, because they are. I walked up here and I know. And uh, I'm going to tell sort of three quick stories, possibly, if I have time. We'll see how it goes. Number one, when I was a little boy and I started at Dalston Primary School, which was 1970, I arrived here with the long hair that my hippie mother gave to me in a town that was then very much stuck in the 50s, and everyone had buzz cuts. And they thought I was a, an arrival from another planet, I think, and I felt the same way about them. And I remember at some point there in grade one, some boys looking from behind a fence at me and saying, what do you do when you're not at school? And I said, oh, well, at night time, two giant eagles, golden eagles, fly down from Jupiter and they pick me up in my bed and they fly me back to Jupiter because I'm the president of Jupiter and I run the army there, and all the people that live on Jupiter are animals, twice the normal size on Earth, but they're invisible except to me, because I've got a special magic lantern that lets me see them. And we fly off, and we fight against the people from Venus, the Venusians, because they're bad news. And these boys stood there with their mouths hanging open, like, what? <laughs> and I told them the story again, and they ran off and got some other boys who all came back, and they said, tell them! And I told them again, and they looked at each other, and uh, I got the nickname Mars Man. <laughs> I'm 55 now, and every so often, late at night, I'm walking down the street, a car will drive by, someone will wind down the window and yell, Mars man, at me. It still happens. I told that story once in 1970. Once. I still get called Mars man. Uh, so those stars are definitely out. And I was thinking about your Bunjali eagle thing, because I flew to Jupiter with eagles, right? And, I, and Jupiter is the god of jollity on the one hand, but also sort of order. He's the father of the gods. And we fought against the Venusians. And this, one of the big struggles in my life has been between the urge for order and my attraction to love and the difficulty of living with it 
And it's strange when, when Nikki spoke before about the subconscious processes and their own wisdom, even as a six or seven year old, sometimes you can see your whole life laid out before you. Um, and that was an instance of that. Second quick story. Years ago, I worked at Hoyt Cinemas back in the late 80s as an usher. And we used to occasionally have a premiere. And one night we had the premiere of the film Ground Zero, an Australian film, which had Jack Thompson in it and Colin Friels, I think his name is, and so on. Great film. And we had the premiere and had lights out the front and people were pulling up in limousines and everything. And all these idiot moron stars were turning up in limousines. We had to have white gloves on and stand there in a neat row of people with our horrible bright nylon, red jackets and white gloves and clip-on bow ties. And all the stars were coming and looking very important. But Jack Thompson drove his car up the back laneway and came up the side laneway and came through a side door and just walked in with no tire or anything, with his hands in his pocket, big beaming smile. And he just walked through the crowd with nobody looking at him. Nobody was glad handing him. Nobody had seen he arrived except me. I was standing there with the other rushers and I went, oh, that's Jack Thompson. And uh, he came walking up with this big beaming smile on his face. I've always liked Jack Thompson. You know, I, I've always liked him. He came up with this big beaming smile on his face. And he was, I was just walking towards the door. I was the only person that had seen him. And he walked up. And I was the only person he stopped. And he looked at me and he went, g'day. And I went, hello. He said, how are you? And I said, I'm really good. And he said, oh, that's good. And he shook my hand. And then he walked through without saying a word to anyone else. And so... Um, I got a very positive impression of Jack Thompson, as you might imagine. At the same premiere, the Americans, at that point, I suppose, star starlet Melanie Griffiths was in town for another film, and she was invited to this opening, and she came in, and I always thought she was a bit of a moron, because I read an interview uh, that Paul Newman had done, where he'd basically said, look, she'll be dead by 30, you know, and pr pretty much, and um, she turned up, making a lot of noise in the lights, waving at the cameras and everything. And all the seats were allocated. And I showed her to her seat. She said, I don't like this one. I want to sit back there. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry, but all the seats are allocated. She said, well, I don't care. I've got to sit back there. I said, well, I, I'll go and get the manager, if you can just wait here a moment. And I wanted to get the manager. And when I came back, she'd seated herself at the other point. And the manager just went to her, to her and he said, I'm sorry, you can't sit there. You've got to sit down there. And she sort of got up because he was quite imposing. He was six foot four, this guy. She sat in the other seat. And I went off to serve more people. And when I came back, she'd moved back to the position. And I walked back to her listen, I'm I'm really sorry about this, but the seats are allocated and somebody else has that seat and yours is down there and you've got to go down there. And she said, of course I knew, yeah, she was Melody Griffith. She said, that immortal line, do you know who I am? <laughs> and I had the enormous pleasure, I still get a thrill thinking about it, saying, no, no, I don't. But your seat's down there and you've got to go down there. And, uh, and she had to get up and go. And there were all these people sitting around sort of watching this whole thing. She's been quite loud about it, doing the starlet thing. And she got up with everyone looking at it and she sat there fumingly angry. And I, I was over the moon, you know, with this kind of schadenfreude of imposing this on her. And I went out the door and the film started. And within about five or six minutes, she was back in that seat. And she'd asked the other people to get up and move out the way. And they did. There you go. That's Melanie Griffiths. And the third and final story about other stars out tonight. Um, I find life quite rollercoasterish. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, if I have a spirit animal, it's a bipolar bear. Um, and as I, yeah, and um, I have my downs. And um, in one of these periods of my downs, I finished work one night, I remember, and I was walking home from the main street, as I've done for 50-odd years now, back down by the lake and along Bleakley Street. Now, Bleakley Street is the bridge that goes over the lake. Not everyone knows it's called that. 
I'd love to see an Irish law firm of barristers and solicitors called Obliquely and Overtly, but it's never happened yet. I'm waiting for it to happen. And I was walking home, and I got to Bleakley Street, and at a certain point, I just sat there on the ground. It's the middle of winter. It was very cold. And thinking in the middle of the road, because there was never any traffic in those days. And then I lay back on the road, looking up at the stars, thinking about things. And after a while, my mind stopped working, and I was just looking at the stars. And I, I take a religious view of things, or a spiritual view of things, but sometimes I lose sight of that. I get to a very dark place where I think I'm completely fooling myself. And there is no connection. And there is no unity between the individual soul and what I think of as the soul of the universe, which the plain English word for which is God, although it's a polluted word, but still that's the plain English word. And in this moment, I, I lost sight of it. And I was looking at the stars, as I often do. And in that moment, I saw that the infinity of space is that it's this vast, empty blackness where nothing is connected. The spaces between things are so impossibly vast that our human ego shrivels to nothingness in the face of it. And all our conceptions, all our own grandiosity, all our own sense of our importance in the scheme of things, or even the tiniest relevance in the scheme of things, shrivels away to nothing. And that the stars were just these thermonuclear mindless bulbs of far-offness, far off from us, far off from each other, with nothing connecting them. And I remember looking from the north to the south of the sky and saying, it's impossible. There is no connection between anything. And I lay there for a moment, and I remember thinking, oh, maybe. And as I had the thought, maybe, a shooting star came from the north right across to the furthest point the south point, the longest shooting star I've ever seen in my life, like someone dragging their nail down your skin, that little white line that disappears so quickly, from the two points I was looking at, exactly, and connected them, right at the moment that I thought the word maybe. <laughs> Thanks. I love, Toby, the way you always curl around our themes. <laughs> I just bought a few things for in the middle of all the stories. I don't know if you know, I'm on the um, Reconciliation Action Committee and the Reconciliation Week this year, we're having a little film club brought to you by all the crew that have been doing the um, Dalesford Cinema. And one of the movies is called We Don't Need a Map and it's all about the Southern Cross. So the dates for that is the, uh, the 30th of May. They're also going to be showing Top End Wedding and another uh, Tales from the Kimberleys. I've got it up here if you want to have a look. But are the stars out tonight? They will be on that night. <laughs> One of the things you also mentioned, Jack Thompson, when we were all excited about the Live Love Life Festival and the enormity of, you know, you could pay $1,500 to go and learn how to be a florist. What? $1,500? The only thing I really wanted to see was Jack Thompson doing his beat poetry. But we missed that. Have we got any more storytellers? Yeah. Kirsty? Kirsty, do you want another story? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Um, I wasn't sure whether I'd tell a story tonight. Um, and I just thought, I'll see what happens when I get down there. Normally, I sit and stress myself out and go, I'll come up with a theme. And, and, this, today's been a very, I don't know if it's the right word, is serendipitous, where things have just happened where you just go, wow. And it's been one of those days. And I'm just going to see where this story goes, okay? Um, 
obviously I'm not from Australia. Um, but I've just been told that because my kids have a great, 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 great grandmother that was buried very near here, I'm actually in. Okay. <laughs> anyway, but it's basically, I was never coming to Australia. Australia was too far away, the other side of the world. Took 24 hours to get here, and I thought, no way, I'll lose uh, a day of my life. Um, although losing a day in a life on a plane is actually quite fun, to be quite honest, or you get used to it. So that's what I do now. Um, there will be a point eventually, just so you know, about the stars. Um, so I never wanted to come to Australia, but I was, I knew about Australia. And I used to have a big book of maps, was like, Massive, not the big old books you got. And me and my dad used to look at the maps. And we look at Scotland and England and Ireland and Wales and, well, not so much Wales, poor Wales, they always got left out. But we went there, it's a beautiful place. Go to Wales, it's gorgeous. But um, Welsh mining history, all that. Anyway, I've always been fascinated by history, but I didn't realise it because I didn't have a name for it. And I just taken information and and the thing that's I don't know if anybody knows but in your brain there's little things called astrocytomas and they mean stars and my friend has a brain tumor and she calls it her star <laughs> her, her um her head and I remember thinking what you named your brain tumor do you know and and the reason we're friends because I have a brain tumor um and I discovered Dalesford seemingly a very, very long time ago, but I didn't know it was called Dalesford. And a lot of my life has just been going with the flow. And Australia, I've mentioned to Annie lots of times, I heard about Aboriginal people. And to me, they sounded like the most amazing spiritual people on the planet as a little girl. I didn't know any of the horrible, terrible, traumatic history because that's not advertised. It's not until you get here and you feel it um, and you see it or if you travel. And I love the stories that everybody's told tonight. I love that there's, there's stars in this room. Like, I'm just talking as I'm thinking now. Anyway, the point being was I have always felt a sympathy with this country. And when I lived in Scotland growing up, I always thought, I'm going to live in the country. And whenever I felt shit or down or life wasn't working out, I used to go, that's it. I'm off to the north of Scotland, middle of nowhere. I'm just going to have some quiet time. And I go and work in this little hotel that was actually was used in an Alfred Hitchcock film, The 69 Steps. I think that's The 69. I don't know if that's my rude mind, but I always call it The 69 <laughs> Steps. Um, and one of the most amazing evenings I had up there, I was, I was 16 and i just left home, and there was a meteor storm. And I lived in a place called Glencoe, which means the Valley of the Weeping, because there'd been terrible, horrific massacres occurred there during hundreds of years before and you could feel it and it was a magical magical place it didn't matter what the weather was like 
and I had magic. And tourists would drive up and down and meet some very interesting souls along the way. I hitchhiked a lot, which I wasn't allowed to do and I didn't tell my mother for years. And just up from it, there was a Milky Way up a place called Kinlochleven, where that was affected by history from the Spaniards hundreds of years before. And I started discovering history and going, wow, this is amazing. And this night there was a meteor storm. And when I was young, I always believed you made a wish on a star. And this night, the stars were just going everywhere and we were all stoned and just lying in the middle of the road, just looking up at these stars and, did you see that? Did you see that? Do you? And making these amazing memories. And then, four years ago, I got really sick. And I ended up coming up to a place in Sebastopol. And I realised I was near a place called Dalesford and I thought, I've got to get out of here. This is beautiful where I am, but I'm here for a really sad reason and I'm not enjoying it. And drove up here and I went up to Cornish Hill, which I went to do with a dog. It was wonderful. Not my dog, but I'm thinking of getting one. Um, and what I love about this town is... It has a magic. The people in this town are magic. I had a discussion with someone today and it says, is it just calm people that come here or does this town attract calm people? And I thought when I came here, I wanted to set up an environment for my kids because I have no control. And I've realised that along the way of life that you've just got to have fun. And all the stories tonight, I was crying at some just they were all moving they were amazing and I thought of what I wanted to say as I was going along but I was like stop thinking listen and um, that's what I love about this town I love to stop and listen I love the magic I love the history I sometimes feel a tremendous feeling with the indigenous history in this town and the fact that so many amazing people are raising their voice and about everything that we worry about and everything that we are trying to find answers for. I reckon there's somebody in this town that will do it. It's amazing. It's an amazing community. And what I got told when I first came here was Dalesford's a town that indigenous people would pass through on the way to go here. And that lots of things happen when you come to Dalesford, <laughs> that the truth comes out. And I like to think that there's definitely an indigenous spirit here that is, I hope, thankful that we all care as much because I don't know what the PC thing is in Australia, but I just think it's the oldest history on our entire planet. That's magic. And the Milky Way comes right over here. And I think for centuries, for millennia, we've all been looking at the same stars. That Milky Way's been traveling around. And I just, that makes me excited because I think, I wonder what we're all looking for and the answers. And we have a lot of trauma and we all get through it, but yeah, I'm looking forward tonight because the stars are out. 
just so just in case you wondered and <laughs> and they're in this room tonight because you guys are really Annie thanks for putting us on I, all of you I'm, thank you <laughs> Anybody else got a story? Stephanie. Um, uh, nine years old. Nine years old, we're on the fourth night of over 40 degrees. It's hot. Sleeping is for nobody. Uh, my cousin and I, Heide Summer, decided it would be a great idea to wrap ourselves up in uh, mozzinets and go out on the trampoline. And we are going to watch the stars, and we watched the stars until we didn't make it to dawn. We got eaten alive. Um, but with Mount Franklin as a backdrop, it was always the place. And I was thinking when I was young, they were my stars. I had, to, I had this absolute ownership about which stars were mine. It didn't turn out that way. Getting a bit older, getting in the ute with Mum at 3.30 in the morning to race up Mount Franklin to watch Haley's Comet. Uh, it just, we, my, my dad would get up and uh, sleep with the lucerne, wait for the dew on his face and then think, oh, there goes the last star, right, I'm ready to cut. You know, things like we operated with the stars but we didn't really know we were or we didn't think it was significant in any way. Then you get a bit older and you tend to share your stars and uh, I remember... Uh, meeting a young man in the crater of Mount Franklin and we, I said to him, we see the same moon and I felt like if you give away a little bit of your moon you give away a bit of your heart and you don't really get it back. Uh, I remember saying to a wee four-year-old that I'd looked after for four years of her life and then that family were moving out of the town. I said, we see the same moon. Wherever you go, we see the same moon. I met her last year. She's 30. And she said, do you remember what you said to me? Yeah, yeah I do. And, um, yeah, the thing is to navigate. To navigate your life through the stars. But you do it so subconsciously, or do you? But, you know, we were 18, 19 years old and we would walk, not much to do in Dallas back in the day, which was fantastic, lucky us. You know, your, your first night of getting drunk was under the stars down at the lake and your first big long walks with, you know, philosophy and anything that you could think of that had meaning in your life was walking out past Italian Hill on the railroad tracks and, uh, you know, seeing UFOs that weren't, it was just a Labrador with a light on his collar. <laughs> but we were convinced for quite a while there. Um, then you get a bit older and you, you head overseas and I knew you were going to say Glencoe. And by the way, welcome home, Christy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was stuck on the side of a, a mountain in Glencoe, had the crampons on, all of a sudden, you know, this storm comes over and we just think there's not going to be any light, there's not going to be any light, but it's okay. We had stars. We got down. Um, but they weren't my stars. Everything was upside down, you know, Mr Orion's belt. Maybe it was the right way up. I can't really remember. But I do think of all my life we looked up and... I've kind of taught my daughters to look up too, you know, not so much down or this, but to, to look up. And when uh, I've been living out at Wombat Park for 
a decade and a half now. And uh, I've been looking into W.E. Stanbridge, as we did a, about a month ago. Uh, with his anniversary, and uh, we went to a, a talk in the um, hysterical. not hysterical society, and uh, and uh, we we listened to uh, W. E. Stanbridge. He uh, for three and a half years over at Tyrrell, he actually talked with, worked with, watched the stars um, with two very special Aboriginal people. About five tribes would come and grow out of Tyrrell and they all believed, all five tribes, that these two men had um, very good star knowledge. Um, and uh, W.E. wrote a book about it, a little thing which he um, presented to the Victorian Royal Society. When I was a little girl... I remember two things. One was meeting Auntie Vi, although all the documentation say that she came in 77. Uh, she didn't come in 77, but I was there with Mrs Campbell and we made scones and I was just had my seventh birthday. And she held my face, and I think I've told you guys this before, but she held my face and she said, the Jarawong, the Jarawong. You have to say my land like you say my stars, the Jarawong. And um, so I feel really lucky in that. Back to WE, if he invested for three and a half years and had three and a half years of star maps and knowledge of all the Aboriginal words, why not here? And the other small piece of memory, it's a teeny tiny little blue book and I'm going to find it, you know, and I've got a friend at the State Library in New South Wales and he's looking for me too because... There's no way that he didn't learn the Jarawong Aboriginal language. There's no way that he didn't get all of that knowledge about astronomy and Aboriginal astronomy and not do it here as well. So that's what I'm looking for um, and I probably will for a very long time. Just to finish off, we for Mother's Day got up got on the road, we're down the beach by about nine o'clock in the morning, home by three. You can do it. It's a good day. All we did was walk on the beach. And we were walking at Janjak uh, Surf Beach and right around, if the tide is kind, you can get right, right around, you know, heading towards Bells. And uh, we were playing and looking and seeing whether it were game enough to taste, but no, they just looked like dinosaur food. Um, so we didn't. Um, but we met this man who realised we were foxicking as much as he was, and he was from um, Museum Victoria. And the girls and I were doing this on some mudstone until it was getting nice and squishy, and we had this lovely clay on our feet. And he said, he looked at Juliet, who loves anything to do with everything. And uh, he said, oh, 20, 22 million years that mud is, that, that stone has waited to become mud on your feet. And that was it. She was in like Flynn. Um, but then she was rubbing it all over her face and it was all over. And I go, what are you up to there? And she said, I'm just letting my eyes become the stars that they are. So, <laughs> thanks. It would seem by osmosis or however it happened that last year we would pick a winner every night, but last time we didn't do it and you could tell your son-in-law for us that he can come back because we're not judging them anymore, okay? <laughs> 
And I'd just like to know, let you know that the little booklet by W.E. Stanbridge, Under the Tyrrell Sky, well, I'd lost it for a year, but it's back at the library. It is back at the library, so if you want to read it. And thank you so much for taking me back to Scotland because I've been there a few times as a storyteller and... Um, I remember once I was at the Waverley Hotel around the corner from the Royal Mile where Billy Connolly got his big uh, start. And everywhere in Scotland they have little um, maps of Scotland with clan groups. And on the night I was invited to a local storytelling night, I had a map of the Aboriginal language clans of Australia, which is two, over 100, 250 different nations. And I said to them, you want to see a clan map? And I pulled it out and showed it on. <laughs> But thank you for coming tonight. If you're not on our mailing list, make sure you get onto it so we can let you know what's happening. Thank you for Cathy Watt, our regular door bitch. <laughs> thank you for all our storytellers that had a go. And thank you once more to the Dalesford Hotel, Graham, Anne-Marie, Sarah, you're there somewhere helping serve drinks. And let, hope, we hope to see you again. Thank you very much for coming, everybody. Hi, I'm Zara, and you're listening to the Cicada Story Slam. The Cicada Story Slam is in a country town in Victoria named Dalesford, and it may be a small place, but the community and people are great, and I, if I don't say so myself, the stories are even better. I would like to acknowledge Annie Stewart and Maya Irel, who made all this possible, and of course everyone who helps out behind the scenes, and you, for listening. If you have a wild story and you're a part of our community... Please feel free to come to the Cicada Story Slam and share your amazing stories because we'd love to hear them. And the story takes you there. Don't know why, you don't know where. But the story takes you there. June, I take refuge from the gloom. Pellegrini's Cafe, 8 a.m. Where the postcards old and worn, their edges frayed and torn. Paint pictures of a time way back when. And the story takes you there. Don't know where, but the story takes you there.
Stories handed down, stories passed around. Everybody's got a story they can tell. Stories to make sense in this old world's defense. Just make sure you say it well. And the story takes you there. You don't know why, you don't know where. Are you strong enough to take that down? And let the story take Take you there. 